Hello and welcome to the Access of Space Defense and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space defense and security. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to episode 27, The Business of War: Understanding Military Agencies. mercenary groups and private military companies this topic is something that we ha- all are aware about uh, but we don't really see so many in depth uh, analysis about this topic so i thought today i will get on board a guest who's an expert in this area uh, who will be not only providing us the surface level details but also taking a deep dive in the specific aspect of this topic So uh, without any delay I would like to welcome uh, Dr Molly Donigan. Hi Molly, welcome to the podcast. Hi Omkar, thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much likewise uh, we are really happy to have you on the podcast uh, firstly because I know how things are busy in the industry uh, given the geopolitical landscape at the moment. So really thank you for you know giving us your precious time. So before we take a deep dive into the topic uh, can you tell us a brief uh, journey about uh, your i mean in general your journey in this industry i mean not only the defense industry but in general in this sector you're associated with the rand corporation so can you tell us like how you ended up being an expert in this sector sure yeah great question Um so yes I am at the Rand Corporation I have been a researcher there um I'm a political scientist by training so technically I think my title is political scientist uh I've been there for about 15 years and I came directly out of my PhD program at Cornell University um when I was at Cornell I started there really having an interest in arms control weapons of mass destruction um and and really nuclear war uh based on work that i had done early in my career um but i was at cornell during you know i started there in 2003 september of 2003 so it was really the the very early days of the iraq war and throughout my time there in my graduate studies we would liaise with military professionals military officers who had come back from Iraq and Afghanistan and they were talking about you know these really interesting things that they were seeing on the ground and particularly they were referring often to blackwater contractors um and the fact that they were seeing friendly fire incidents between them and US military and that it was really sort of a situation of the wild wild west out there and sort of these cowboy contractors coming in and i found that really fascinating so i decided to focus in my dissertation on that topic looking specifically at how private military contractors can impact military effectiveness and sort of that puzzle of why do they use them if they're potentially you know cobbling up the war 
Um, so I've been working on the topic itself since about 2005. I, I would say most of my work at RAND does not focus specifically on this topic. It's much broader, um, but I am still very much uh, interested in this topic. I liaise with academics and the scholarly community, as well as the contractor community on this topic frequently still. All right. That's, that's a very interesting career path, I would say. Uh, it involves a lot of interaction with the field officers as well. And so, you know, before I would say we start with full-fledged, the complete topic, we have an audience from the space industry as well for this podcast, which are, you know, who who are familiar with the defense sector, uh, in general, the military agencies as well, uh, but are not so much familiar with the way the defense industry operates, the kind of terms that we are going to use in the episode today. So can you tell us uh, the difference between military agencies, mercenary groups, and private military companies? Definitely, and this is also a great question. So military agencies I think of uh, as state-controlled, state-affiliated groups. So, you know, an actual the US military, I think of as a military agency um, or the French military. Uh, mercenary groups, in contrast, are formally defined as foreign fighters hired for pay. Uh, it's actually really interesting when you read into the literature about this, there is uh, some debate on how to define mercenaries, but there's uh, sort of been a consensus that has developed around those two factors, that they have to be foreign to the conflict, so not, not a national of either party to the conflict, um, and they are primarily motivated by financial incentives. PMCs or private military companies, private military contractors are often likened to mercenaries, but there are some distinctions. So mercenarism itself has been around thousands and thousands of years. The earliest recorded instance of mercenarism that we've been able to find dates back to 2094 BCE. Um, and it was actually the norm for uh, any sort of military activity, any sort of war activity up into the French Revolution. So thousands of years. Um, PMCs came onto the scene really in the second half of the 20th century, and they are a corporate form of mercenarism. They often do not necessarily meet those criteria of being foreign fighters. Um, you know, they are, they're very corporate. They often have an actual, you know, corporate office structure with a CEO and, and often in a big building, although sometimes not, sometimes they're more mom and pop shops that spring up. Um, but they are definitely motivated by pay and they sell services on the personnel side of the military industry. So while folks in the aerospace industry, are of course familiar with companies like Lockheed and Raytheon that sell equipment um, and supplies and sort of you know big research and development arms that create you know sort of modernized systems. We're talking here about the private firms on the industry that sell risk analysts and security contractors. Uh, logistical support contractors, transportation contractors, so folks who actually drive the trucks through wars, 
um, communications contractors uh, who work on IT systems in war zones or on military bases, those types of things. Um, like I said, those PMCs or private military contractors are often equated with mercenaries in the common media. Um, they bristle at this quite a bit, I will tell you, having interacted with them um, in various yes. fora for years, they do not like that, um, but they are they're a little bit different. All right. Yeah, thank you for providing such a, a vast historical significance uh, to this issue. And from your perspective, do you think it is a good idea to privatize military and security operations? Also, just to you know, follow up on the same thing. Uh, I mean, this might also reduce the effectiveness of national security of armed forces in general. So, what do you believe? Uh, is it a good idea to privatize the military and security operations? Yeah, that's a complicated question, and and I think it depends on how. It's it's a bit subjective, right? So, how does one define good idea? Um, I will say privatization provides governments with plausible deniability. It can be helpful yes. to a state's leaders if they have an area in which they want to um, operate a bit in the shadows without either the international community or their domestic public really being aware and they want to have some influence there. Um, you know, they've yes. uh, as some of my research has shown that contractors can increase military effectiveness when they're operating in this way in the shadows and sort of away from state militaries. But we've also seen them be deployed in situations like Iraq and Afghanistan, where they're deployed alongside the state military. And just like yes. I was talking about those friendly fire incidents that had been reported to me when I was in graduate school that I found so interesting. Those are instances where there's these frictions between state militaries and private military contractors. And it's that friction that can actually lead to a pretty significant decrease in military effectiveness. I talk about it in terms of PMC military co-deployment. That's sort of a, the term that I use in um, some of my writing on this. And it really gets down to the fact that there are both structural and identity-based frictions between these two groups of forces. So what do I mean by structural? There are, you know, there, there are no systematic command and control systems necessarily that are written into doctrine or law for how a state's military is supposed to interact with private contractors on the ground. So that can lead to failures in communication, um, confusion about where somebody is supposed to be deployed and who's actually in command in that theater or that area of operation. Um, the identity-based factors are really interesting. And from my research, I found sometimes we have citizens of the same nationality with very similar backgrounds. US Special Forces um, are a great example. So we have had U.S. Special Forces veterans deployed as contractors in various yes. theaters. Iraq and Afghanistan are great examples. Um, and they have gotten into fistfights or drunken brawls or even been killed by active U.S. military troops. And okay. they speak the same language. They're veterans. You know, they're, they're from the same organization. 
but there is a yes. resentment there between them. Um, and this resentment stems from sort of these perceptions of higher pay for contractors, better living conditions for contractors. And so it can lead to a lot of tension. So, so ultimately, you know, in those instances, I think to get back to your main question here, this can reduce the effectiveness uh, on the military of using contractors. Yes, interesting. I mean, as you mentioned previously also, the military agencies are solely operated by government. I mean, at least in most of the countries, uh, because there are several countries where the military operates the government or mainly operates the complete state, actually. Uh, but do you think geopolitical motives are one of the reasons why governments are also looking to deploy private military companies for overseas missions? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, this is what I was talking about with the plausible deniability piece. If if a state government wants to have boots on the ground without their public, you know, sort of throwing a flag about it or, or being upset, yeah. <laughs> or if they want to have uh, even sometimes folks in their government not know, you know, sometimes contractors have been used in very black ops shadowy type of ways to get around any sort of parliamentary or congressional knowledge of these activities um and so it depends on the government and it depends on the theater obviously in which they're trying to act um but that is definitely a motive at times to to get a foothold somewhere um i would say we've seen this most flagrantly over time on the african continent um with various governments using contractors in this way. So Russia most recently, um, but the United States has done this too. Uh, the UK as well in several examples over time. Interesting. We, we actually have some guests uh, right after this podcast in, in the next few episodes who are going to speak about specifically about Africa. I mean, the foreign forces inter intervention. And it's really great that you're providing a contest to what is private military companies, how they operate. And I believe audience is going to have, you know, a basic knowledge of this before they, you know, step into the future episodes of this podcast. And can you tell us how the relationship between private contractors and the government work simultaneously? Uh, and do the military agencies have the power or rights to interfere in their operations? Yeah, this is a really good question as well. And this gets back to what I was saying earlier about command and control structures. Um, so there are not typically doctrinal or legal structures that limit contractor activities. That being said, it's very situationally dependent. Um, so in some states where they have legalized the use of private military contractors, there will be domestic laws that state sort of the circumstances under which they can be used. One example of this is in the United States where you know, it's written into law and policy that private contractors can be used only defensively in military settings. In practice, that gets really cloudy, you know, especially <laughs> operating in a situation yes. like Iraq or Afghanistan where there was not a front line. Um, 
Yes. So, so there are some, there's some precedent, I guess you could say, where they have been able to sort of constrain contractor operations. Um, however, like I said, in theater, when they're actually deployed in a tactical sense, I think the norm is for there to be a lot of confusion about the command and control structure, at least at first. There have been instances where state militaries and defense departments, MODs, have been able to get this a bit under control and actually try to put into place some standard operating procedures and better communication structures. So we saw this again, Iraq is a great example. This is a great case of learning how to integrate contractors alongside the military. But it took about seven years, um, you know, from 2003, really up until 2010, before they started to have, um, you know, this, uh, the one instance of a good structural communications uh creation that they made was the Reconstruction Operations Center, which was essentially a civil military operations center that was like a coordination hub for military and contractors to all come in, get sort of the sit rep for the day, um, share information about various locations. But before that, it would be contractor team leaders getting the cell phone numbers of the military commander in the theater literally oh. the personal cell phone and calling them up and saying, Hey, we have a team driving through your area today. Don't shoot at them. Um, oh God. lots of instances of that. Um, so yes, it, it really does vary and it's possible, but there's, it, you know, it takes active, um, effort by the military or the state in question to make sure that they have this sort of thing like indoctrinated and put into a standard operating procedure yes and little bit i'm curious because uh, the issue of wagner has been you know lately been a lot of you know in the news so wagner's footprint across africa and now in ukraine has put a significant spotlight on private military companies so can you tell us how are these groups funded, uh, what are their motivations, and does this translate into a degradation of the effectiveness of Russian military? Yeah, this is a great question and so timely. Um, remember when I was speaking earlier about the differences between sort of traditional mercenaries, yes. and PMCs or private military contractors? Wagner is an interesting case. They are often called PMCs, Russian PMCs, and I've done this too in some of my work, they are like on the extreme end of mercenaries. So they are uh, definitely motivated by pay. Um, they're also somewhat of a paramilitary force in that they are very strictly aligned with the GRU. Um, uh, an arm of the Russian state military. They train with them. They fly with them. Uh, they deploy alongside them. And in some cases, they have parallel command and control structures, it's been reported. Um, so I just, just want to put that out there at the outset, because they are a little bit different than even other Russian PMCs that we've seen in the past, but definitely different yes. from the Western PMCs and 
uh, PMCs that do not come from Russia. And I think one of the reasons for this is they have, you know, they sort of reflect the oligarchical structure in Russia. Uh, you know, Yevgeny yes. Prigozhin is definitely an oligarch. He is within Putin's inner circle still, I would argue. Um, and that's yes. probably why he has survived recent events. Um, <laughs> but, he, but he's been yes. within that inner circle for decades. You know, I mean, he is really a businessman. Um, yes. The group, to get back to your main question here, the group is funded through a series of front organizations. And the Wall Street Journal has done some really interesting reporting on this within the past few months. They, they uncovered something like 46 different front companies that okay. Wagner has used over time to launder money back and forth to between uh, governments in Africa, mining operations in Africa, in the Middle East, and a little bit in South America, Latin America, um, and the Kremlin. And so... But they're actually, if you follow the money trail here, it's it's pretty evident that Wagner may be renamed, it may be restructured after this uh, sort of failed mutiny, if you want to call it that, in yes. late June. Um, but they're not going to go away because they're actually a very significant source of income for the Kremlin. The Kremlin will deploy them into um, very dangerous areas in Africa take over mining operations in big mines, diamond mines, gold mines, um, institute security there, and uh, sort of more efficient mining processes. You know, they bring in different technologies as well. But yes. really what they bring are these very official, very well-trained security forces. And they Russianize the entire mine overnight. Um, and then that money, the the resources from those mines, some of it go to the state government in Africa where the mine is based. And that's the state government's incentive to bring in Wagner. They're making it more yes. efficient, they're reducing security risks. But then they also send a good portion of the funding through these front companies back to the Kremlin. And this that's happens in multiple, multiple cases. Um, and then Wagner gets a cut off the top. <laughs> so yeah. uh, it's a very efficient business model for them, actually. Yes. And a little bit, you know, to extend uh, on the same lines. I mean, you mentioned previously that the state doesn't want to take the accountability. And, you know, somewhere they use private sector kind of, you know, to put all the load on them. So can you also expand upon the issue of accountability of PMC's operations? Yes, and this is sort of the Pandora's box question. <laughs> um, it is really, uh, uh, this is why contractors provide such good plausible deniability and why they can work through front companies to provide resources to the Kremlin. There is very little accountability yes. for their actions. And Part of the reason is that they fall in this gray area, this crack between domestic law and international law, because it's such a transnational industry. The yes. exception there might be Wagner, because Wagner is so closely affiliated with the Russian state. Um, so Russian domestic law theoretically could control 
the firm's activities uh, or, or particular contractors' activities on the ground. However, uh, Putin and the Kremlin have intentionally maintained domestic uh, illegal status for the private military industry in Russia, which is rare. This is not something that you see in most states. Um, and they do so, I think, because they want to keep them in this sort of non-accountable status so that they can keep utilizing their plausible deniability um, instrumentally. It's a tool of the state that is very intentionally created. Um, with other Western or global private military contractors, though, it really is such a very transnational industry. So you will have, for instance, a U.S. firm like DynCorp hiring Ugandans or Chileans to provide security in Iraq or Afghanistan. I mean, this, this happened frequently, right? So very clear instance of utilizing third country nationals in that case. Who are they accountable to? Are they accountable to Iraqi law where they're operating? Are they accountable to Ugandan or Chilean yes. law? Or which is their nationality, or are they accountable to U.S. law? Um, accountability, the flip side of it, is protection. So for these individual contractors, they are often exploited, um, particularly the third country nationals who are sort of shipped in uh, without knowing where they're going. They're paid less than what we might call expats, so like a, a British or U.S., special operations veteran would certainly not necessarily, you know, be a target for human trafficking in this case, but somebody uh, coming in from Chile or Peru thinking that they're going to go away for six months, make a hundred thousand dollars and bring it back to their family. You know, their passports are held. They have to work it off. They have to play for their plane tickets in and out of theater. Um, and they're paid sort of a paltry sum to operate there. Um, so that that lack of accountability and the fact that they fall into that legal black hole really does reduce their protections as well. Um, yes. And we can talk a lot about that too. You know, there, there's lots of yeah. uh, aspects of this from the individual side of the contractors too. Interesting. And apart from Russia and the United States, can you briefly tell us about the global uh, PMC landscape uh, specifically have you noticed any other private military actors challenging the state power like we recently saw with the Wagner in Russia yeah this is a really really interesting idea an interesting question what we just saw in Russia um I would say that in modern times the level of sort of outright blatant mutiny of a large group of contractors against the state is unprecedented. Um, yes. it, but that is to say, you know, like I said earlier, mercenaries date back to 2094 BCE. Yes. There are likely instances in ancient history where these types of things happen very frequently. Um, we definitely, as I mentioned, saw friendly fire incidents in Iraq. Those were more the product of confusion and misidentification than the product of any sort of organized uprising against the government hiring them. 
Um, yes. The only other instance where I would say, you know, if we really dug into this, we might find some evidence of this type of organized uprising against the government by contractors uh, could be in the case of the condottieri in the Italian city-states in the sort of 1200s to 1400s. Um, and that was an, a, a very interesting case in which we had uh, Italian contractors signing actual contracts called condotta and fighting for the various Italian city-states. The city-states had their, their militaries were all essentially privatized. Um, and so, you know, I don't know if I would call it so much an uprising as these the governors yes. of these city-states were able to launch their sort of private armies against each other um, uh, quite frequently. <laughs> and it, it got to be yes. quite violent at times. Um, but other than that, you know, I, I do think that this case of Prigozhin's mutiny in, in, with Wagner in Russia in modern times is pretty unprecedented. Yes, I believe uh, there is a lot more to explore on this topic. Uh, but uh, yeah, as, as we are, uh, you know, reaching the end of the podcast, uh, I would like to take this opportunity to ask one question for the student, uh, because this podcast, you know, as much as it is meant for the industry research scholars it is also meant for the students uh, so lastly what message would you like to give to the students stepping into the field of defense and security research studies thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to, to reflect on this a little bit you know i teach part-time at carnegie mellon university and so i i do interact with my students quite frequently um and the one piece of advice that I typically give them that I have learned throughout my time at RAND is that it really makes sense in this field to go in, you know, keeping an open aperture, an open mind about where you're going to specialize. Um, in this particular field, a lot of areas of specialization are driven by current events. And so some of these things you can't predict um, and they will change over time. So you don't want to be so deeply held in one area that you do not have flexibility over time to sort of be agile and explore other areas as well. So I always tell folks, think about having a portfolio where you have two or three really deep areas of ex uh, expertise and specialization, sort of like you're putting stakes in the ground in those areas. But then after that, really focus on your methodological training, you know, learning how to do statistical analyses or machine learning or more qualitative skill sets like interviews, comparative case studies, historical trend analysis, those types of things, because you can learn the substance of any particular area of expertise within a week. You know, you can read you can read a number of books and get pretty smart on it quickly. If you have those methodological skills, though, you can really think analytically and get deep in something pretty quickly, but still be agile. Um, so, yes, that would be my advice on CAR. But I'm interested to hear, I'm curious to hear, too, what your advice would be and what what uh, you've heard from other folks on this type of question in the past. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, no one actually gave uh, such an in-depth answer. Uh, like people have uh, told 
in terms of skill set i would say uh, to the students like what kind of skill set uh, but the answer that you gave you know much more lies in uh, structuring the students perspective and i think perspective is something that makes an individual unique um, and i am of this thought as well uh, that you need to develop your unique perspective regardless of you know which field you are working on uh, maybe you are working in the film industry maybe you are working in defense sector maybe you are working in space sector uh, whichever industry or the sector you work in uh, a perspective your your own unique perspective makes you different and as you i i mean you already gave the background to it you know how to structure and develop those things uh, so yeah that, that's my advice as well <laughs> to the students so yeah thank you very much molly firstly uh, for you know giving us your precious time and i uh, believe that there have been lot of questions uh, that popped up during the podcast uh, maybe in the future definitely we'll be able to uh, deliver one more episode uh, whenever you have time of course uh, and i believe we will be seeing a lot more developments uh, on the private military company side so it will be really good yeah. to have one more episode in the future uh, follow up of this one uh, so yeah thank you very much again and it was really great to have you on the podcast i hope the audience takes away a lot of key things especially uh, the accountability issue that you mentioned it's something that someone has very much mentioned in a direct way uh, on the podcast uh, so i'm really thankful to you for providing such a great insights thank you very much molly Thank you so much for the opportunity Omkar and I'd be happy to come back at any point. I love talking about this topic. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you find our podcast insightful, then please like, share and subscribe. See you in the next episode. Thank you.